Hello and welcome to another episode of FireDev, a fireside chat with developers or people in the industry that developers will be interested in hearing from. And today I have my guest Evan Moss. Just want to thank you, Evan, for you know coming on the podcast today. Of course, of course, happy to be here. Thank you for having me. No problem. So before we you know talk about Apple and you know all the other stuff that you're doing. So I just want to go right back. What was getting into Carnegie Mellon like, you know, such a prestigious university and how was your experience there? Ah, uh, man, it was, it was a trip. I had done, I'd done a couple summer programs at Carnegie Mellon in high school. Um, and so being able to go back, being able to go back as a freshman meant I, my first day on campus, I already had a bunch of friends. I knew a bunch of upperclassmen and that really helped get me started on the right foot there. Um, I love Carnegie Mellon. I don't have anything bad to say. It's one of those it's one of those institutions where it's not made for everybody uh, because it is it is really hard, really difficult. Um, and it takes a certain kind of person to want to deal with that kind of mental pain. But at the same time, I wouldn't I wouldn't ever choose to go anywhere else. I loved it. Okay, that's good stuff. And like, what did you do in those programs that you mentioned, you know, before you actually started? I went to the Summer Academy for Math and Science. So it was a, it was a program primarily for minority students. Um, and their motto was making good students great or something like that. Okay. Uh, it was like a, not so much a high school prep program, but uh, it really, it really strengthened my foundations in math and science and also introduced me to a bunch of different engineering, um, kind of engineering careers, engineering classes um, that I would not have been exposed to otherwise. Okay. Was that kind of like AP math or AP chem that they have in America or is it something different? It's it's something different. AP, AP math, that's like, that's like a high school class. This was actually a six-week program during the summertime. So for six weeks, I lived, lived on campus in a dorm with other high school students. Um, our counselors, our, like our floor counselors, were were current Carnegie Mellon students. We took we took math classes, science classes. There was some uh, SAT prep classes. Did it, did it take? Did they have SATs where you where you're from? Uh, no, they don't. But they have similar stuff. I mean, everyone in the UK has heard about SATs just yeah. because you know media, so movies, TV shows. It's a big thing to talk about SATs. We have we do have something called SATs here, but it is different to you know, your SATs, even though, you know, it's spelt effectively the same. So we don't so, exactly have that. <laughs> it was, uh, I mean, a lot of, a lot of SAT prep. Um, and so it was, it was a summer before my junior year and summer before my senior year in high school. And so um, my junior year, I started and like math and science, I was, I knew it already. I was, I was very well adept. Um, and yes, it really it really set me up to go to Carnegie Mellon to you know, help me be ready for college. Okay, that's good. I've just had a quick Google, so it's it's more the equivalent of what we have at a is it's A levels in this country, and that comes after high school from typically ages sixteen to eighteen. Then from eighteen onwards, you would do university, assuming you don't do any repeat or any gap years. So yeah, it's, it's it's the equivalent of A levels. But I've always felt that when I watch movies and they're talking about SAT, it, it just feels more intense over in America than A levels were here. Again, A levels weren't the easiest thing I remember, but 
again, I don't know if it's movies or TV shows, but how accurate is you know the SAT experience compared to how you see it in movies? It's no, it's very real. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I forget now, but I think it's something like a four-hour test. Gee, um, no, yeah, Ozzy's not like that. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's 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 crazy. It's very intense, and the, the tough part is a lot of colleges require it as an inch, like if your SAT level isn't high enough, you don't even get considered. And so the the intensity of it is thinking, holy crap, I got to sit here for four hours and be perfect on this test. And if I if I don't get a specific number, I can't go to college. That's what it, yeah. that's what it like. Yeah, that's like the biggest difference, I would say, with the A-levels and SATs. Is, six, is 1,600 a perfect score with SATs? I think I think twenty two hundred. There's 2200. I there were three. If I remember right, there were three primary segments, and each segment was you could the maximum score was eight was eight hundred. Okay, and is there just if one for our test, or are there multiple for different subjects, or is it all kind of combined? Nope, it's one it's one four hour test that covers math, math, science, and language. Okay. Um, so yeah, the crazy part is most people only take the test, may, you know, once, maybe twice, um, and it's one of those things where, yes, it evaluates, it evaluates your your your, your education, evaluates evaluates like what you know, but really, there's some very basic kind of tricks and techniques that you can learn to doing the test. Uh, such that all I got to do is all I got to do is tell you the strategy once, and your 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 scores might go up ten percent. Um, and so one of the benefits of the summer program I went to is we took the test I think six times every summer. And so by the time by the time I I actually took it when it mattered, I was chilling because I had done it so much, I was used to it, I knew what to expect. But the people around me had no idea. Yeah, I think that's a huge part, especially with examinations, uh, you know, university, college, school, is that if you're doing it that one time, because it's not just the exam paper, it's it's that intensity of sitting in a hall, in a room, where you know it matters so much, you can't talk. You know, actually, I'm assuming you're allowed a toilet break in those four hours or not? Yeah, there, there, is, a, there is a break at some point, but it's, it's very brief. It's very yeah. It, it is. And it is. You can't it talk is with each other. Go ahead. I was just saying. I'm guessing you can't talk with each other during the break. <laughs> uh, I think you. I think you can, but I mean, the break. The break was really short. It wasn't like even if you could talk, it wasn't gonna matter. <laughs> it wasn't gonna, it wasn't gonna save you at that point. Yeah, and probably that little break. It, People probably just wanted to go toilet, you know, relieve themselves or grab a glass of water. Yeah. Like the last thing on their mind for those two few minutes was, yeah. you know, trying to figure out what this question was. Yeah, like the that's one of the things that I I always recommend to people because you know I've done tutoring before as well is try and get in the flow of doing what you're going to be doing. So on the day, you know, the questions are going to be somewhat alien to you. Yeah. Even if you know the topics, the exact question you probably have not seen before. So, but try and remove the alien aspect of your inner room. You know, it's quiet. You cannot talk. And, you know, at home, let's say if you do an hour and a half, two hour test or whatever it is, 
you might be tempted to take a five minute break, go to the toilet, grab a snack. You can't, you, you can't do that in an exam. So, you know, try and make sure that you're not doing that and just, you know, actually do it. And because I remember when I was doing my A levels um, at university, my degree as well, for the exams, what I would do, I would get, you know, past papers if I had access to them. And I would, you know, just emulate, you know, what you would do in an exam, you know, like essentially what your summer course was. And I would do it. I would, you know, then grade myself because I had the mark schemes. But I would try and be strict. So if I got, let's say, 50, 60%, I would try and figure out what I got wrong, do it again, do it multiple times to the point where I'm just like, this particular paper I've got nailed down. Then just do more of these. I think that's definitely one of the, you know, best strategies. Obviously, you need the knowledge. <laughs> you, you can't do that and then have no actual math skills yeah. uh, to talk of. But outside of the skills, you need to be prepared for the format itself. And I think that's just life in general. It's like interviews. If you're not prepared for that format, you're going to struggle because it's going to be so alien. You're going to be just tensed up anyway. Yep. It, what, it, what it does, my, my, the, my thought on this is control, like control what you can and don't worry about what you can't. Um, yeah. And by that, it's like, the more the more familiar you can be with the format of the test, or the more the more prepared you can be, the easier it is for you to to you for you to just exist in the moment. And that's oh, yeah, how sure. that's how you get the best that's how you get the best results in my experience. Mm. Yeah, that that thing that you just said a moment ago that reminded me of a quote that goes, you know, I can't remember who it was, but he said, you know, I just think of you know what I'm thinking about, what I'm worrying about. I just think, can I control it? If it's something that I have control over, I don't worry because I can control it. And if it's something I have no control over, then I don't worry because I can't control it. I mean, yeah. it's easier said than done. But if you, you know, like say, if you try and practice that, you can't control, you know, what grades you're going to get because you could start thinking because it's not marked by a computer as far as I'm aware of it, especially now in the UK. It's marked by humans. You don't know. And I've been marking before. So I know that just like they do it so quickly so it's so easy for them to give you know a lower mark even though they deserve the high mark and you generally would never know so that sort of stuff you just don't want to think about you just want to think okay it is what it is it's the same with like the you know you having to be in a room you know it is what it is you can't be in a comfortable chair you know in the right temperature that you like it with some snacks that you want and maybe someone there to support you. So if you can get used to that aspect, and when you get the exam, you're literally just concentrating on the exam and not yeah. the external environment. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I found a video of you at Carnegie from 12 years ago, talking <laughs> about, uh, I think you know which one it is, talking yeah. about SAMS. What is SAMS and how did that video come about? SAMS, SAMS is a summer program. SAMS is the the abbreviation for Summer Academy for Math and Science. Uh, you've uh, already covered it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's trippy just because, you know, that, that program really, really changed my life. Now, a lot of, most of, most of my closest friends uh, I met while at that program. Like my, my, bre my best friend, um, my best friend is there. A lot of, a lot of my confidence as a person was, was really kind of started started there. That program was the first time. It was the first time I was surrounded by other other black kids that were smart. Mm -hmm. um, and 
a lot of my like a lot of my my public school experience prior to college, my grade school experience was battling battling this idea that black kids aren't supposed to be smart. Um, and that was that was perpetuated by that was perpetuated by by teachers. That was perpetuated by black students. That was per- perpetuated by not black students. And so, um, being a black guy and being smart made me an outsider in, in a lot of groups in high school. And so, being able to leave being able to leave my high school, you know, the, the program was in the summertime. Just, you know, being able to go to another city, live in a dorm. And just spend six weeks surrounded by about a hundred other students that were all as smart, if not smarter than me, uh, was really a was really a life changing experience. And so, like I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have ended up at Carnegie Mellon if it wasn't for those programs. A lot of a lot of my closest friends, a lot of my closest relationships, I wouldn't have if it wasn't for that program. Um, and it really it really jump started a lot of things for me. Uh, and so, I, that, I think going like the decision to actually go to the program was one of the single most influential decisions I made in my whole life. So that video you were talking about, they, they asked me, uh, the organizer of the program, well after the fact, asked me if I, if I could say something about it. And I, I, uh, there's no way I could pass on an opportunity to, to rave about how amazing the Sam's program is. Okay. And, yeah, like, I remember, you know, obviously I'm Asian, so I remember growing up, you know, similar feelings that in, it's it's kind of weird when you was, you know, intelligent, when you was doing well, and then I saw plenty of other Asians um, that weren't doing so well, and it, I, I don't believe they were inherently, you know, stupid or anything, it's just the backgrounds they had come from, or you know, what they had been told and what they believed just meant they just weren't doing that well in their subjects. I remember when I was at school, you know, because I had after-school classes and even just it was just during school, like a lunchtime and a break, they had extracurricular activities. And one of the ones was a chess club. And I went to the chess club and I remember it's just all white people. I'm like the only Asian kid there. And even though there were plenty of Asian kids at the school, you know, plenty of black kids at the school as well. But yeah. those kids all did, if they did an extracurricular, it was, all, it was usually sport-related. They never did the maths or the science you want. Or I remember another one, it was, again, this doesn't really have anything to do with intelligence, but in terms of interest, they had a remote RC club. And, you know, you could take your own RC car, but they had stuff there as well. And then you just basically, you know, after school, once the kids are gone, just literally outside, you would just race them. You, you just have some fun. And yeah. the teacher that did I mean, woodworking or metalworks, he was, you know, in charge of that. And again, it was the same thing. I remember it was it was just all white kids. I'm the only Asian kid. And I remember one time some Asian kids that I knew, I think they had had detention. So they had, you know, stayed in school a little later than they usually would have done. They were yeah. walking uh, back home. There was a near, you know, going for school and you know they saw me was talking and they was like you know what's this and uh, it, it was it was like almost alien to them to do a class like that but yeah. if there was some sort of football class they were more you know likely to do that even though when they had a quick go at it they loved it, it like come on anyone that's 14 15 year old a boy messing around with RC cars you're gonna enjoy it. you can't not 
but it was it was just that mindset of it's 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 not for me or I won't be accepted. So it's it, a, it's a weird one. A lot of it it really it really comes down to exposure, uh, mm. and just you. It's hard to be. When you think about when you think about chess, if you've never if you've never seen anybody play it, you don't you don't have any idea about the the intense level of strategy that goes into it. It's really it's hard to appreciate the game. It's not it's not it doesn't have a it doesn't have a fun score. Uh, it's not it's not necessarily fast paced. It's not necessarily exciting to watch if you don't understand the rules. Uh, and so from that perspective, it's really it's really hard. It's really hard to be excited about chess. I like I, I know I wasn't excited about chess until until I saw some of my older cousins playing uh, as a child. Um, your your commentary brings me back. An, another way of exemplifying this idea is through this experience I had uh, well after I graduated college. I was living in Boston, Massachusetts, working, um, and one of my coworkers asked if I would. If I would come, he, he said his sister was a teacher in a poor neighborhood in Boston. Not a poor neighborhood, but like a a, a not rich, we'll say, not rich neighborhood mm-hmm. in Boston. And she asked if I asked if I would come and be and participate in a career day. And I said, of course. So I went and talked to something like six hundred college students. This is a this is a whole not college students, six hundred uh, elementary school students. This was a whole day's worth of career fair type stuff. And it was it was classroom after classroom. We would come and go, come and go, and we do this panel. And in every class we would ask, oh, what do you want to be when you when you grow up? And almost a hundred percent of the students were Hispanic or black. Almost a hundred percent of the students said they wanted to be a nurse, they wanted to be a car technician. Um there was a there was a few others, but like nobody. It was always I want to I, I want to be a car technician. It was never I want to be an, an engineer. It was always yeah. I want to be a nurse. It was never I want to be a doctor. It mm. was I want to I want to be a teacher, right? It was never I want to be a professor. Um, and it's it's it would have been one thing if it was like one group of twenty or or even a group of fifty, but to think that this was a real that was, this this was true for an entire school of students was just one, it was bizarre to, to see firsthand, but also it really exemplified the, the significance of, of, uh, of one of representation, um, but also of, of exposure. And so I think, I think back to, to like the black kids, the black kids I went to high school with, uh, the majority, like the majority of black kids that like my black friends, they didn't, they didn't come from homes where they saw people reading, where they saw people going to college, where they saw people as engineers. Um, me, on the other hand, my, my mom was a teacher. And I grew up seeing her have a, have a deep appreciation for books. And so that's, that's what ultimately spurred my love for reading, my love for education, just, just because I was exposed to it at home. Yeah, I mean, it's a similar thing for me. I grew up with you know, my dad used to read, uh, even even if it wasn't books that I now would probably read. But, he, you know, I saw him, you know, doing that. And I remember there were plenty of, you know, kids at school that I, you know, that had friends. Again, it wasn't just Asian kids or black kids. I had plenty of, you know, white, you know, friends 
that you know grew up from let's say more broken households and it was it was something that they would probably you know ridicule if you you know read in their house or you know, play chess or you know one of those things so obviously it was uh, they obviously built up a, like an armor around them. They were like, you know, I don't want to do that because it's clearly, you know, whoever they think is not manly enough or they, you know, they'll get ridiculed. Whatever it is, they just didn't do those things. But because I didn't grow up around that, and I remember the area I lived in was predominantly, you know, white. Uh, exactly something that my dad really and really wanted was because the Asian areas that were near us, uh, where we grew up, they weren't the best areas as well because it wasn't just oh, it was an Asian area. It was just they just weren't the best areas because there were white people there. Eh, but it was just the the good areas or the better areas were you know predominantly white. And he wanted us to live in those areas. And as a result, I didn't have that stigma. I was you know that sort of mindset around doing or not doing certain things because I remember one of the things I love is video games. Being at university towards the start. And I am talking with some people about video games, some Asian guys that are in the same building as me, and we're just hanging out, we're playing. And I remember one of them gets, because they already knew each other, and I just met them at the, you know, in those few days. And one of them gets a call, and the like the person who's calling is asking, you know, you know what are you doing, what are you up to, you know, when, when, when we're going to hang out. And I remember he said, oh, we're just playing FIFA. And I remember one of the other guys was like, you know, don't say that, you know, it's embarrassing. I, I remember just thinking, for me, I would be like, yeah, I'm playing whatever I'm playing because I enjoy that. There was like no hiding that fact. And it was just, it, I see you all the time, even as adults, I see with people where they think they can't enjoy certain things, even though there's nothing wrong with them. It's almost like they're illegal or unethical, but they're not. Yeah. it's. It's foolish. It's foolish and unfortunate, but what can you do? Yeah, it is one of those things. <laughs> so, I think you kind of probably alluded to this already, but would you recommend university to people, and why? Hmm. It. Yeah. No. Yes. And, okay. Yes. I. I honestly. I don't. I don't think university is for everybody. Um. I don't think you need. I don't think you need a college degree to. You don't need a college degree to be a plumber. I don't think you need a college degree, like to be a trash man. You don't need a college degree to be a construction worker. But those are all jobs you can make. You can make a very healthy amount of money. Uh, you can like you can live a very happy life with the with with the amount of money that you can make with those jobs. You can be. There, there's so many other options you can have. Uh, for being able to live a fulfilling life without necessarily needing a college degree, and so I think for for my own my own aspirations, the the things that I enjoy, the the type of lifestyle that I wanted to have, um, a college degree made sense. I very much enjoyed engineering, and it was something that I wanted to dig into more. I wanted to have a deeper understanding of how things work. Uh, and so college made sense for me, but I know a lot of folks who one of one of my one of my closest friends from high school lives an amazing life, loves his life, enjoys it. He works in a restaurant in Las Vegas, uh, and will probably never finish college. And it's total it's totally fine for him. It, it 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 works. There's there's no detriment to his life because of it. And so for that reason, I 
I wish there was more of a focus on people, people taking it, taking into account. What are your, what are your real talents for one? Where, where can you add, how can you add value? How do you see yourself adding value to the world? Uh, but also what do you, what do you really enjoy? What fulfills you the most? And, and your awareness around, around those two questions or those two thoughts should help you decide whether or not college is for you. But I don't think, I don't think by default, everybody should, everybody needs to go to college. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm pretty much on the same point of view as you like it's great to go it's a great achievement it does open up certain doors and obviously if you want to be a doctor or lawyer you don't really have much alternative to go but if you want to do other things like you say if you want to pick up a trade so i i I think the issue is there's so much you know negativity around being an electrician or you know anything manual like being a builder but then i know electricians i know builders that earn a good amount of money. They earn more or as much as someone who has a degree and that's an engineer, for example. And on top of that, they have a skill that they can use guaranteed in their life multiple times. Because the thing is, you could be a programmer and if you never make your own app or start your own business or do anything like that, chances are you're probably never going to need or utilize programming in your house. But if you're an electrician, you're going to need to do something with the electrics at some point. If you're a builder, you might want to do an extension or fix a wall. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. You save your save money, so then there's like kind of extra money earned by because you're saving it. You've also be able to do it without relying on someone, and you can do it, you know, on your own time as well. So I think as a society, we need to make sure people are aware there's alternative and even alternative for. You know, careers that are typically thought as career, I mean, university-based, you know, like being a programmer, for example. Because, you know, I did programming at university, but I understand and I've seen people where they never went to uni or they never went to uni for programming and they get a career in programming and they get a job and they get just as high of a salary as if somebody graduated with a good degree. So it's, there's this, again, I don't know, in the exact reason why it's perpetuated throughout the media and throughout society, because there's definitely a lot of money, you know, that gets thrown around with loans and books and all these other stuff. So there, I think there's probably an element there. Because in what in America, how much is a typical college degree now? Shoot, at, at, you know, probably twenty twenty thousand or more. Is that a year? I'm guessing. Yeah. I that must be yeah. I think I think my mine was something like mine was something like eighty eighty thousand sixty thousand a year, I think the number was. Well you um, were sixty thousand dollars a year. Yeah, but I but I also went to like I know Carnegie Mellon is a really expensive school. There's okay, there's yeah. it, there's much there's much cheaper options to go to. Yeah. Um, but I think, ideally everyone should go to the best that they can, you know, go to. So like it, it, it's a shame. If somebody had the skills to go to Carnegie, but then they see the price and they're like, mm, I don't want to go. And as a result, they have to go to some, you know, you know local college that's yeah. nowhere near good. So, so college, what college does is it's, it ultimately, it ultimately says, Hey, what, what skill do you want to become an expert in will help you. Um, 
And so it's such that like when you when you leave you you leave college, you're supposed to have a skill that's marketable, a skill that you can go and add value to the world somewhere. Um, the reason why college is stressed, like it's stressed as hard as it is, is because I know in the U.S., uh, high school isn't designed to help you to help you develop your own your own personal gift, if that makes sense. Like there's yeah. nothing there's nothing to help you explore what what specific skill what specific skill should you study that enables you to also use the natural gifts and talents that you were born with, right? That's that's not a question that that high school helps you to answer. Such that when you graduate high school, it, it's it's a it's a it's a coin toss on whether or not you actually have any kind of marketable skill, any 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 way to add value. And most people most people don't have the the lived experiences in high school to really be able to say, hey, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna go out and be a be a jewelry designer. I'm gonna go out and and and, and make toys. I'm gonna go out and design blah 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 blah. Or, or, or I'm gonna go work here. Most people don't don't have that wherewithal. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's you know that that's partially why colleges push so hard. And I think college ultimately, in a way, it's a cheat code. It it does it does make it does make finding success easier. Mm. Uh, because there's a there's a bit of a framework for you to be able to explore. Oh, this works for me. Oh, this doesn't work for me. Uh, it also allows you you regularly have to deal with the pressure of 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 taking exams, of being tested, of of having to show up. Uh, whereas in 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 everyday life, it's it's much easier to oh, you know, I don't want to take this test today, and you avoid it for six months. Like it's much it's much easier to go long spans of time without really having to without really having to evolve. Um, and so that, like, that's a, like, another, another way of explaining the benefit of college is the framework of college kind of pushes you to evolve in a way that might not happen if you don't have college. Oh, yeah, that's structure. And the fact that you can go to college, university, and spend three, four years, possibly more if you're doing like a medicine, you know, medical degree or some other degree with like master's and PhD, like three, four years, and you focus on a particular topic, so let's say, you know, programming, for example. And because at school, you have so many different subjects that you're doing. So you don't really know, you, you know, you haven't really explored one in any capacity. So you choose this particular one, let's say programming, and then within that, you'll have all sorts of stuff. You'll probably, you know, touch a bit on web development, you touch a bit on mobile, a bit on, you know, the theory and all this stuff. And then you realize, okay, you know, I really like mobile. I'm yeah. not loving web, not loving the theory, but I'm really loving mobile. So you dive deeper into that, and it's accepted within society for you to be three, four years without any particular you know, aim and direction and to kind of find your way. But if somebody said, I'm going to finish school for three to four years, I'm going to live at home with my parents, you know, rent-free, and you know, basically no cost at all, maybe get like a... Know a weekend job just to have a bit of money, but yeah. generally virtually no cost. And for three, four years, I'm gonna, you know, I want to do coding, but I'm not too sure how I want to do it. But I'm gonna explore it. People, I, I that would not wash with a lot of people uh, for very long. They would say, "Oh, do you know Billy over there? He's just acting like a bum. He's just, you know, sitting at home playing video games, or he's just on his computer." Whereas if he had gone to university, they'd be like, "Oh, did you hear? You know, Billy going to university." You know, he, he's doing programming there. 
like the the actual like the way they talk about it will be totally different. And I think that's a problem as well, where the only way you can kind of experiment uh, when you don't have you know much money is in a especially in an accepted way, because that's a huge part for us as humans is to be accepted and to have the sort of not have people constantly, you know, you know, on your back, whether it's parents, with friends, family, spouse, potentially kids if you're a little older, it is college and university. And and because of that, people are like, no, I'll go to college. I'll go to university. Because for a few years, I can basically have no direction in any major way, but find my direction. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that was, for me, I was, it was really important for me. I wanted to go to college as far away from home as possible. Uh, not, I, I absolutely loved home, but I also, I also kind of enjoyed the pressure, the pressure of being alone and having to figure it out. Uh, I enjoyed the pressure of not being able to like, not, not having the option to just, to just quit and run to mommy. And that, that pressure alone, like really, really grew me, really helped me really helped me to define who I am as a person, what I wanted out of life. Um, and that was a, that was a, just, just the added, the added direction that I felt from that experience has, has served me really well. Oh yeah. When you're, you know, at university, like, cause I moved away as well. It's only about an hour and a quarter away, but it wasn't near enough that at a, you know, drop of a hat that I could pop around. And I didn't have a car as well. So, like, there was that factor. It would easily be a two-plus-hour journey if I was taking train. And then there was the money fa- you know, factor. So, you know, I remember probably a few weeks, uh, if that, into me starting university, I was sitting there. It was probably about 11 p.m. And I remember thinking, I think I wanted a bowl of cereal. I didn't have any milk. And I remember thinking, oh, I don't have any milk. You know, I can't, you know, there's no one that I can call. And then I remember just thinking, there's no one here to tell me I can't go out and grab milk. So I remember, you know, putting my, you know, clothes on, you know, some clothes that I can wear. So I remember walking to the, you know, shop that was still open. And it was just, it was dark. Obviously, there was a few lights on. You know, I felt safe, but it just felt weird because it was just quiet. I remember, yeah. I, I remember almost thinking, am I going to get a phone call off my mom and dad somehow as if they have a drone watching me? But I got there, got the milk, got home. And I was like, I just did that. Uh, <laughs> and it, it, it was obviously that teaches you a lot about life and how to live life. And it's, it's, a, it's a crazy thing that you just can't get if you just live at home or you have, like you were saying, your mommy to bail you out or somebody you know, nearby to bail you out. And it's partly also the fact that you know, if you step out, nobody's going to recognize you. So nobody's going to be like, oh, you know, he was out at 11 p.m., even though you might have just gone to the store to grab something to drink or yeah. some milk or some food. Um, so, like, having that aspect, definitely university, even if you're not popping out late, you know, knowing that things aren't going to get clean if you don't clean them. Yeah. Uh, you know, things aren't going to get organized if you don't organize them. It's definitely a certain type, a certain type of pressure that, you know, shapes a person because you even become very lazy and you see that all the time. I'm sure you saw it, you know, Carnegie where you saw people, they had like pizza boxes stacked to the ceiling, you know, beer cans, soda cans, whatever. But then you saw people that were more organized because 
you were left to literally be you. There's no one saying, you know, you know, do this, do that. And if you didn't do it, because at home, your mom would just do it or she'll make you do it. I, you know, my, uh, I have two, I have two young, two sons. They're two and four. And our, our, our previous nanny just moved to a different city to go to a different university. Um, so she, she's been telling us about her new roommates and, um, she talks about how one of her new roommates literally didn't one does it like asked, asked somebody to teach her how to wash dishes, <laughs> which just, just, just blows my mind that there's such a person that exists that can, that is, that can graduate, graduate high school and literally not know how to wash dishes, not know how to wash their own clothes. Those people exist. And it's not until you go to, it's not until like for, you know, in my experience, college exposed me to a lot of, a lot of personalities, a lot of ways of thinking that I don't know I would have believed existed otherwise. And even oh, yeah. even even if I believed they existed, I you know, just not being exposed to them, I wouldn't have been able to appreciate them. I wouldn't have been able to really consider those perspectives if I hadn't actually witnessed them in college. Yeah. And being there when you're talking to someone, you disagree with them, and then not having your friends and family to, you know, back you up. Like you say something right or wrong, and somebody disagrees with you, and it's just you and them, uh, and you, you have to stand by what you say. Like it, like that's a big thing as well. Because I remember there were certain times that you know university, I said stuff, you know, to friends, and you know, certain stuff was wrong, certain stuff was, you know, they didn't know. But either way, it was like they questioned it, and then it's just like, Ooh, you know, what do you do now? Because they didn't take it at face value, and you have to defend yourself. You have yeah. to justify it. That's a that's a huge thing, and that's a skill that if you if you don't live away, whether it's a university, a college, or whether that's just you know going away in general, you struggle to get. And then when you go into the workplace, you're gonna get a lot of different opinions, and there's gonna be no teacher to Damn. mediate and say both of you shut up. <laughs> yeah. 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 Hmm. Okay, so afterwards, you were the product engineer at Shark Ninja. What did that involve, and what did you do there? God, I hated that company. <laughs> <laughs> I literally can't say anything good about the entirety of that company. Um, my role was, in a nutshell, I would take the U.S versions of products and study international compliance laws um, as a means of figuring out how to redesign the U.S. products so that they could be sold in international international uh, markets. So like the UK, the UK, for example, has some of the most ridiculous, some of the most ridiculous rules around, uh, around like requirements for, for blender, like food blender safety. Um, and so, like, it was it was my job to figure out what's the cheapest way, what's the cheapest way for us to to modify a design so that it could be sold in more countries. Okay, uh, I mean, was it the work itself you didn't enjoy, or was it the, the actual company and the environment? The comp, the company and the environment. I've only I've only been I've only done project management. Um, Shark Ninja was actually my second job. I did. 
I worked at a company called Four Moms before that, making making robotic baby baby products. Loved it. Doing very similar work. Um, trying to figure out like my job then was was figuring out can I take can I take the existing product. I, I would take existing products and figure out how to how to how to produce them for cheaper, um, and that was that was really fun. How 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 can we make how can we make the these like baby play pins cheaper and lighter? That was that was awesome. Um, also, how can we how can we grow the market? Like again, internationalizing products to be sold in more places. Um, so when I got to Shark Ninja, the work itself, like you know, I switched from. I switched from uh, baby products to, to kitchen products, so that was that was new. But the work itself was the same. Um, the environment at Shark Ninja though was just was just not great. Um, okay, there was yeah, just just not great. That I mean, I've never upon upon many things I could say one thing I I, I can say is like strong very strongly is I've never seen a, a, another. Uh, Another institution be be so disrespectful of people's time. Um, okay. In, term, in terms of like my my previous manager would he he scheduled an eight a.m. meeting for every single day, and would literally never be on time. Like he <laughs> would he would you know schedule eight 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 o'clock meeting, and if you were not. It, if you weren't in his office at eight o'clock, he would call you multiple times, like call you back to back to back. Hey, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? You go to his office, you know, eight o three. Oh wait, one second. I need to I need to step out. And he would literally leave leave you sitting in his office for like 15, 20 minutes, and expect you to wait. Um, and that's just that's just one person. But it was like there was every day there was just an egregious egregious amount of disrespect for people's time. Uh, just, just overall disrespectful of of uh, of people's humanity. Uh, I, yeah, nothing good to say about that company. Yeah, I mean, I've been. I remember when I was at uh, university, I had a placement year from twenty twelve to twenty thirteen, and I was at a company called Accenture, so you know, really big company, and I hated it there as well. It's just like the way it wasn't exactly the same, but it's just they just. Each person, they just felt they was more important than they actually were. Yeah. Instead of just saying, "No, I'm coming to work. I'm getting some money. I'm doing some. I'm doing a job." And at the end, there was charging clients, and the clients were stupid to pay it, it just because it was a big company. Like you know, sometimes they pay IBM, you know, a shit ton of money just because it's a big company, and the, they were paying a lot of money for stuff. The stuff wasn't that good. And what made it even worse is when we're you know as you know, developers as creators were creating the stuff, but because we can't, you know, create it as good as just two or three of us could, even though there's hundreds of people on there, just because of the you know, poor decisions that are made, whether it's the tools that they use or the approach they take, and yeah. you have no flexibility. And then, like, I remember the because the working time in the UK generally is nine to five. Obviously, you know, it depends on the job. I remember it's nine to five. And I remember on the first, because it was different projects at that particular company. And the second project I had, uh, the manager said to me on the first day, it's nine to five, but we expect everyone here from eight to six. <laughs> and, and I was just like, uh, I was only there for a year because you know, I had a one year placement. And it's just 
that mentality of it's like okay you, you ain't paying me more you're not giving me any extra leeway uh, you know any extra you know holidays as a result so you're saying we have a contract for nine to five but you know i have to be eight to six and i remember literally there's so many people that would not leave even though they even weren't doing anything or they wanted to leave to at least at least six had hit because they knew that if they you know were seen leaving especially people that was there you know permanently i was again i was there for a year i left at five or half five you know at the end of the day i just need to get through this year uh, yeah. i don't need anything else out of it uh, i just need the experience i just need it on my cv other than that i don't need it and yeah there were people literally just sitting there for up to like half five six even beyond like i saw people up to seven o'clock sometimes when you know i was working late the odd day and it was just it was crazy it was insane even though we sometimes see the manager leave at half five and they knew that there will probably be someone that would say that this particular individual didn't stay till six yeah. uh, and as a result they would just stay and it's just that mentality of you know it's like a dictatorship it's a fearful mentality and as a result because a few people do it other people do it to get higher as well they become engrossed in that sort of world and they just become just like those people and i remember there was one guy there he was a manager pretty high up he wasn't like super high up i remember there were stories about you know because he had assistants about assistants that would go out of his office crying because the way he like shouted at them for no reason and he was considered normal like higher ups knew about it and he was just like yeah that's just the guy that can't keep assistance because you know he's so mean it's not even at, at shark danger it wasn't even it wasn't even assistance like any just there was a, there was a whole culture there was a whole culture of yelling um <laughs> that it, it never came it never came up in in my meet i nobody ever yelled at me but i saw people get yelled at i i i saw people come out of meetings crying after being getting yelled at um I hated how the company, my whole job, my whole job was, was to, again, to internationalize products. And I would go into meetings and say, Hey, uh, this, this design change will cost, it'll cost the company $5,000, but we'll, we'll make that back. We'll make that back in a month. And then within three months, we'll have, you know, $30,000 profit, something like that. Right. Um, you know, $5,000 is actually a big number. A lot of times I would come in and say, hey, we can make this change for, for $1,000, for, for, for $300. I, that was one, this, one, this one instance that I'm thinking of. Um, my, my manager would be like, ah, no, I don't, I don't think that's a good, I don't think we should do that. I don't think it's worth it. Like for no, for no reason, despite me having, having done all the, the, the validation to prove it, yada, yada, yada. Oh, I don't think we should do that. Instead, Evan, can you can you go help pick up this this 3D model from the machine shop, or can you can you submit this 3D model to be produced at the machine shop? And so there were there were times where where I was saying, hey, can I have can I have X amount of dollars to do my job? My my boss would say, no. Instead, can you can you can you go make this model? I'd, I'd be making models uh, like prototypes, prototypes that would literally never never even be reviewed, would never get looked at, would literally go from my hands to a to a desk straight to the trash uh that were costing more money than my than my own initiatives and it was it was just a 
a totally crazy place to work. I'm very, very whereas like I like you you literally I'm telling you right now you couldn't pay me to say anything good about Shark Engine. Like I would I would refuse I would refuse money. I am I am willing to put relationships at risk to like in my refusal to say anything good about Shark Engine. That said though, I love Apple. I very much love I love I love Apple. Yeah, I mean that's good. Yeah, so talking about Apple, you currently work for Apple as an engineering project manager. Yeah. What was the before we talk about you know what you do? What was the interview process like for Apple? Because it's you know it's one of the you know Fang or I mean I guess Man that would call it now you know one of those big companies. So what's it like working for? I mean, what's the interview process like? The inter the interview process varies greatly. Um, it it almost it almost seems like every every person has a has a slightly different experience. Um, mine. Mine was a bit extreme because I, I ended up interviewing for multiple for multiple teams. Um, so it was it was several phone screens, several phone screens uh, with a with a couple with 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 several different several different teams. Uh, after I had a couple teams that were interested interested in kind of going to the next stage of of interviewing, um, they flew me out. I, I interviewed with. I interviewed with two teams, and so I spent I spent a full day with the first team, a full day with the second team, and I think each day had uh, I met with ten different people. Um. So yeah, it's a little it's it's a it's a little bit rigorous, uh, largely because app one Apple pays well, two their their kind of their relocation and kind of startup, their their the. Their sign-on bonuses, the the resources that they give you very early, is it, is pretty crazy. Um, they invest they invest heavily, pretty heavily heavily in you very quickly, uh, and kind of in my eyes, the they don't want to make that investment in somebody who's not gonna who's not gonna show up and, and stay for for an extended period of time. Uh, like if you if you take if you take all that money, you only stay for six months. Like Apple just got robbed. And so their interview process is, it can be pretty, pretty extensive just to really vet that the people, the people who show up on day one are people who are going to, who are going to be there for a while. Yeah. So the good and they also stay. Yeah. Because there's that issue, you know, you get people that are good, they go and work for a company, but then they leave six, 12 months later. They obviously want people that are lifers, that are there for a decade that yeah. can, or more that can, you know, take control, you know, you know, start take control of a you know a particular project, a particular product, and also know the team and know you know the you know, the whole system of working. So, like that interview process, how long was it from when you applied to the the actual offer date, and were and were there periods of time where you just didn't hear from them for ages? My man, my my interview, pro my whole my whole trip, my whole journey to Apple is kind of ridiculous. Um. I got an interview without actually applying. Uh, I had I, I'd applied several times to Apple over the years. Um, there, like, never got a call back. I my, my my she's my wife now, but at the time she was you know just my when when we were just dating. Uh, I come to I was living in living in Boston. My my girlfriend then was living in California. I flew out to visit her, met her father for the first time 
we hit it off really well. Her father managed uh, he managed a repair center at a at a car dealership. Um, and after after he and I met for the first time, he he texted me after he was like, "Hey, this really important guy from Apple will be in the office. Will, like, will be coming to my dealership uh, next week. Would you like me to give him your resume?" Absolutely. And so he, you know, my father, my, now he's my father and I'm following off, pass over my resume. I get an interview. I interviewed for the completely wrong position. Um, and I interviewed, I have a mechanical engineering degree, but I've never, I've never actually had to do CAD for work. I've never, I've never truly functioned as a mechanical engineer in a professional setting. Uh, and so Apple Apple is absolutely not like it's 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 not the it's not the easiest place to learn how to be a mechanical engineer uh, if you're not if you're not like fresh out of college. Uh, and so I'm sitting in this this interview for a mechanical engineer position, knowing I'm bombing every question, knowing this is not this is not going well. I know they're not going I know they're not going to hire me after this interview, uh, but I did it anyway. The recruiter. Recruiter calls and says, hey, yeah, the team decided to pass, um, but I'll give you a resume to another recruiter that's that recruits for roles that are that are more in your wheelhouse. Um, I was already doing project management at that time. So he passed. He, he claimed he claimed to have passed my resume off to somebody else who, re, who re, recruited for project management. I didn't hear anything for a solid month. And I thought for sure. I I was so sure that I wasn't going to get a job at Apple. I'd actually, I was a week away from sending in a deposit to go back to school. Uh, a recruiter calls, like when I say I was a I was a week away, I'm saying I was literally waiting for my next paycheck to to give this deposit. A recruiter from Apple calls and is like, hey. I actually don't know how I got your resume, but I think you'd be a perfect fit for this role if you're interested. And the rest is history. From from that point on, I think it was, I think it was about a month between between that first call and me accepting an offer. It, it might have been it might have been shorter than that, but it was around that 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 amount of time. Okay. And at Apple, what do you do? And specifically, you know, right now. And how do you interact with you know developers and designers in the team? So I'm the middleman between Apple and the factories overseas that produce that produce our products. Um, and so I I help facilitate the product development process. So kind of the way I explain it, if you want to, before you can put a product on shelves. You got to build something. You got to test something. You got to iterate a couple times, and then finally you have a, you have a qualified design. My job is I I come in at the beginning of a product, beginning of a, a project. Apple says, Evan, we want to ship this product. We want we want this product to be on shelves December twenty twenty. Uh, it's my job to to figure out all the major milestones that the engineers and everybody need to do to enable us to, to actually start production in time to hit the shelves by December, 2020. Um, and so I'm technically not in charge of anybody, but it's my job to tell the engineers, Hey, I need you to release your, 
I need you to send your 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 engineering drawings to the to the factories by this date. I'm the one that's telling the factories, hey, build build a thousand of this, build a hundred of these, blah 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 blah. I need you to deliver all of this stuff by this date. Um, you know, I, I set up that whole plan at the beginning of a program, and then when you get into it, things go wrong. Engineers miss their deadlines. Uh, factories have mishaps. That, I think a, a more comical one that I've had is like there was there was a typhoon. There was a typhoon and a, a, a truck got washed away and like some product got destroyed and we had to remake it. Like when those moments come up, uh, it's my job to figure out what's the best plan of action to respond. What's the what's like, what what can we do? What what kind of compromises can we make? What what design changes? What pivots can we do to still enable us to to have a product on the shelf by the target ship date? I can't okay. be, I, I can be much more specific than that, but that's what I do. Yeah. And do you ever have to, because like you're saying, if let's say Apple say you want, they want it, you know, in, the, in December on the shelves, do you ever have to make the decision whilst, you know, you're in the middle or your team in the middle of creating the, you know, the product that, okay, we need to deliver by December. Some features are going to have to be cut. We need to cut this, 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 and this. If so, how does that sort of, you know, go down when you're talking to engineers saying, you know, this thing that you've worked on, we're going to have to cut it from at least the initial release. Oh, absolutely. I think every everybody knows Apple is going to Apple is going to release a new iPhone. Apple is going to mm-hmm. release a new blah, blah, blah. Every year it happens. Um, and that that kind of regularity is something that you don't you don't you don't show up. You don't show up at Apple and not know that already. Uh, and so with that in mind, people, people have this understanding, you might work on something for six months, but if it doesn't, if it doesn't pan out and if it's not, if it's not to Apple quality, when, when, when mass production starts, then we're not going to ship it. Um, and so it's kind of a, it's kind of a cultural thing where you're just expected to don't be too in love with your project. Because it might get canceled, it might like it, it. It it might get delayed. It might not. It might not come out exactly as you want. And so that's that's you know, people. People don't seem to get. Most people don't get too upset if their one feature doesn't doesn't pan out exactly as planned. Um, how does it? How does it actually pan out? Uh, one thing the the toughest the, the the toughest part about Apple is also one thing that I enjoy the most, and that is. Essentially, every single decision that is made about a product has to be based on data, has to be based on you know, some, some degree of research. And so such that you can't say no to a feature. You can't, you can't say no to why, why some, you can't say something is impossible, literally, unless you can prove it definitively. Um, and so a lot of times for, for, for myself, uh, the, the, most of the parts that I manage are, are metal. And so a lot of it comes down to, are we going to be able to produce this part? Can we, can we, can we make the, can we make the tools? Can we qualify the tools? Can we get the material in time for this to all pan out? And sometimes, sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is no, but until I can, until I can explain to you, Here's here's when 
here's when step one is done. Here's when step two is done. Here's when step three needs to be done. But here's why that's impossible. Like until I can until I can prove to you very clearly why something can't be can't be accomplished, then we still try it. We still we still we still put resource towards to uh, we still put resource towards making it making it uh, possible. Okay, and so they're just talking about features that get cut. You know, generally Apple. Uh, you know, let's say the iPhone, for example, has the reputation that, you know, it doesn't get the latest features straight away. And it gets them, let's say, sometimes a few years later. And I would say a lot of time when they do get it, they might be minimal, but they, you know, they work really well. Some of those features that Apple, let's say the iPhone might not get, but, you know, let's say an Android phone has it for a few years, is are some of those features just missed because, they're just not ready yet to their you know standards and they have to be missed for this particular launch. We don't compare ourselves to anybody else. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think you know that there's I I'm coming up on five years at Apple. I've never been at a discussion where somebody's like, hey, well, but but an Android phone can do this or or a Microsoft computer can do this. That doesn't matter. We don't, we don't, we don't, we don't compare. We don't compare about that stuff. We don't, we don't, uh, we don't care about that kind of stuff. It's more, it's more of a matter of does this, like, will this, will this product meet Apple standards if it doesn't have this feature? Yes or no. That's one way of looking at it. Or a different way is, uh, can we, can we develop this feature enough? Between now and, and the launch date, can we can we develop this feature enough for it to meet Apple's requirements? Yes or no? If the, if the answer is no, then we scrap it. Then we don't do it. Okay. And, and that and that's really it. But I don't. I've I've never I, I've never been in a meeting where somebody was like, "Well, well, Android." Like, no, 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 no. We know we know our hardware, our, our software, like our products are superior. Is 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 like the mentality that we have at Apple. Okay. And so. In a few points, how would you describe Apple's, you know, standards? You know, we can you mention multiple times, you know, it needs to meet Apple standards, but how would you describe that in a few concise points? I can't. I can't answer that question. I don't think <laughs> part part of, yeah part of it is I I don't know how to generalize it enough. Uh, but also even even if I didn't generalize it, if I like. If I if I talk to you about if I talk to you about how like how insane if I talk to you about the insane process that goes through qualifying like our keyboards like the the amount of the amount of detail and attention that goes into literally how far does every button on the key, on the keyboard move how does every how does every key feel when you start pressing it how does it feel when you stop pressing it? like every Every detail of every product is insanely uh, kind of regulated, um, and so to, you know what what is the Apple standard is crazy. It's very is very intense. Uh, it's is high. It's so high that most other companies could never achieve it. But the specifics of that is hard to explain. I, I can't I can't explain that. Okay, and so the Apple standard. Is there a lot of testing? Would you say so? Obviously, you gotta make the product, or you know, some you know, you know, early prototype of it. But then, is a lot of the process testing? Some companies will be like, 
we made it, do a bit of testing, oh, you know, this button does this, this button does this. But what you're saying, it sounds like there's a lot of testing to make sure every little thing is just, you know, connecting just the right way. There is, there is an insane amount of testing. That's, okay. that's, that's as extensive as I can answer that question. There is yeah. an insane amount of testing that goes into everything. Yeah. And so with Apple products, they obviously have a fan base. A lot of people love them. But occasionally, Apple will even bring out a product or a, you know, a feature of a product that is pretty, pretty widely you know, hated. So I'm going to talk about the touch bar and you know, on the MacBooks. And again, on the MacBooks, a few years ago when they updated the keyboard and the keys didn't have as much travel, did they call them the butterfly keys? Or I don't know if that was the one that came after. Whatever they called it, they had less travel. So how do you, you know, from your experience, you know, explain how something like that gets through, uh, but that's generally not liked? Whereas, you know, there's plenty of things that Apple does. And, like, you know, even people that don't like Apple would be like, okay, that is of high quality. I might not like it, but it's of high quality. Like, how do you, like, explain uh, when things get through? As, a, as amazing as Apple is, we don't get it right every time. Mm. <laughs> I think I think that's that's part of it. Um, uh, another another part of it is is sometimes sometimes society is just not ready for the technology that's being released. Uh, it, it, a, a, a easier an easier example of that to to see is like Google Glass. Mm. Uh, in the I I feel like I I was still living in Pittsburgh when and I saw some people. I saw people walk around with, with pretty pretty serious prototypes of Google Glasses in like 2014, 2015. Um, but that that's that's an example where like wearables wasn't a big enough wasn't a big enough thing yet. Like society just wasn't familiar enough with that idea that it was it was just too far ahead of its time. And I think some of these some of the products like the the touch bar, the touch bar and the keyboard, I just don't think I don't think that was enough. There was enough of an ecosystem for that uh, to be to be continued, but like I said before, Apple's not perfect. We just we just don't get it right one hundred percent of the time. Oh yeah, for sure. And I think partly sometimes you know you might just be too early. Not in terms of you know people accepting it. There's definitely a case for that. Also technology wise, because you know you know when they released the Touch Bar, I love the idea of it that it was like a screen that you could because otherwise the keyboard is so fixed. Like there's nothing. That you can change because I have thought about it for a long time. And you can get some stream index, but you know why aren't why don't keys have like their own screen? And you know the, you know they can change depending on the application I'm playing. Also, yeah. the keys highlight. Let's say if I'm playing a game or doing Photoshop or doing coding, certain keys I'll you know press more. And um, but I, I feel like with the touch bar, I what I really wanted was that. But then the ability for the touch bar to physically morph in kind of into physical keys so i could still you know touch you know i'm impressing without having to look at them yeah so you know have that flexibility of a screen but have the sort of the visceral feel that a keyboard gives you so yeah, yeah sometimes the text just not there you know they're early and like you said sometimes people aren't ready for it and they want something different yeah so okay and so as a man of color, how has it been at a big company like Apple 
Have there ever been any moments where you felt like you were treated differently? You know, be that good or bad moments. Mm. When when it comes to this subject again, Apple, and I, I recognize my my story is unique, but um, Apple has shown up in a way in a way that I never ever would have expected any company to. Uh, have there been have there been kind of one off one off moments where where an individual might have said something uncomfortable? Sure, yeah, but but as a whole, uh, Apple has supported. I'm a I'm a very active I'm very active in the diversity, equity, inclusion space. Uh, I do a lot of activism. Most of it is is within Apple, but I'm I'm also kind of moving it more into this, the public realm as well. Um, Apple has done nothing but help support and grow grow my my anti-racism work uh in a in a really beautiful way so i think i think about like for me it was the, a really a really pivotal pivotal moment was jo- when when george floyd was murdered in 2020 um without question if i had if i had been a shark ninja in 2020 i don't know i don't know that i would have been able to step foot in an office again like I don't, I don't know that I would have that I would have ever been able to go back to work after after George Floyd was killed, just because that environment was so was so not in, was so overwhelmingly white, uh, but also like aside from race, just just thinking about cultures and the way people treat each other, they were also just so not inclusive that I don't think I could have I don't think I could ever step foot in there again. Um, Whereas Apple, you know, after after George Floyd was was killed, uh, that's what really sparked my activism. Um, and again, Apple has done nothing but but help but help amplify my efforts in that in that area. Okay, and on the subject of you know your activist work, you have you know a really emotional and inspiring video called "Let's Talk About Race." You know, for anyone that hasn't seen it. I'll put a link in the description, you know, it, and that'll be the case for any other links that you want to share as well. I'll put that in the description, you know, tell the audience, you know, about the video, what it is and the origins of it. Cause we've discussed it a bit, you know, off the podcast, but I want to, you know, the audience to hear you know, the yeah. history behind that, what it is. George Floyd's murder. George Floyd's murder was the first time I had to really deal with, with, with race, with racism on a mass scale after becoming a father. Um, and so at that time I was I was really I was really into bodybuilding. Uh, I was really into personal fitness. I was really into powerlifting. And my my mentality for all of my life prior prior to becoming a father, uh, even even prior to becoming George Floyd, because George Floyd was what really made me revisit this thought was I wish a racist would. Like I, I I grew up I grew up very familiar with racism. Uh, it's been something I've had to deal with in every state, every city, every every office, every school I've ever gone to. Um, and my mentality was always, I wish I wish a racist would try me right now because I'm I'm ready for it. Mentally I'm ready for it. Physically I'm ready for it. Like we can go step outside and have that fight. Uh, and and if I if I lose, I lose it, but, but I'm not going to lose. Like that was, that was my, that was my thought. 
when George Floyd was killed, uh, my my oldest son was two, and my wife was still pregnant with our second son. And in that moment, it made me, it was like every time I looked at my child, the thought was, Evan, you can't protect him. Now it was, now it was no longer, it was no longer just, you know, Evan, when, you know, either, either you win the, win the fight or you don't, it was like, Evan, if a fight happens, your son has to see that. And, and regardless of if you win or lose, there's no positive outcome to that. And the having to deal with fatherhood and racism absolutely crippled me. Uh, like the realization, the realization that I could be stolen from my son or my son could be stolen from me. Just, just how, how effectively that was exemplified by George Floyd's murder. Uh, left me feeling like I, I physically couldn't talk, physically couldn't speak words. Um, I realized over and over my experience was largely invisible to to people that weren't like to white people. Just black folks knew it. My sisters knew it. My black friends knew it. My black family members knew it. They under they understood how I felt. But my wife is white. Her family is white. My most of the people I work with are 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 not black. And they they literally couldn't understand what was happening with me. Um, I made my video. I made that I made that video largely as a means of explaining to my wife what was going on. That's where that's where the presentation first came from. I, I, I needed to explain to my wife this is what's happening. I need to explain to work this is what is happening because day after day. As as I got further and further away from George Floyd's murder, I just just I was just growing darker and darker and darker, and it was getting harder and harder and harder to think about. So much so that I was afraid that I was going to lose everything. I was like, I'm a, my marriage is at risk, my job is at risk, you know, fatherhood is at risk. Everything. If if I only tell them half of the story, they'll think I'm crazy. Uh but maybe if I tell them the whole story, maybe they'll maybe they'll see that I'm trying. Maybe they won't lose trust in me. Maybe I won't lose my job. Maybe my wife won't won't think I'm crazy or think I'm unfit. Yada yada. Maybe if I tell them the whole story, uh, maybe something good will come from it. And so that's that's where the presentation first came from. Uh, I gave it I gave it one time at work. To the six, six to six people, you know, the seven people that that I worked most closely with, my my manager plus another six people, um, didn't know what to title such a meeting. What do you, what do you, what do you, what do you call a meeting? Given what I was about to tell, the, what I was about to tell these people, uh, I had no idea. I didn't want to. I didn't want to give it some foo foo name that kind of distracted from my message. So I just called it. Let's talk about race. Um, they showed up, they listened. I get to the end of the presentation. There's a slide that says the end. There's a few, this this is over WebEx. There's a few muddled thank yous. And I immediately slammed my computer thinking, holy crap, you just, you just lost your job. The story that I tell is detailing the moment by moment thoughts and emotions 
from the first week of the first week of having to digest George Floyd's murder. Um, when I told that story, the the primary response I got was, holy crap, Evan, I had no idea. I had no idea that's what racism felt like. I had no idea that's what racism looked like. I had no idea that's what racism was. I have literally hundreds of comments of people saying, saying things like, Evan, I'm a 51-year-old white woman from New York City. I thought I knew what racism was until I listened to your story and I realized I had, I knew nothing. Um, and so the, the, the presentation is meant to, it is, it is the, it is the best way for me to help you see that, that era, that, that moment in time through my eyes. I, I tell you a story about, I tell you several stories about going out with my son, trying to leave my house myself, uh, interaction with my wife and how all of those, all of those impacted me as a person. Um, the the response from the response the response from not black people is Evan I had no idea hopefully you can't hear my my kid just barging through the room I can't it's fine <laughs> he Go wants back. to be on the podcast so what you know the response from not black people is I had no idea the response from <laughs> the response from that I that I get usually get from black people is Evan, thank you for saying the words I didn't know I needed to say. Thank you for saying the words I couldn't string together myself. Um. So, so, so there's that. My 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 family just came and I, I I completely lost my train of thought. But does that does it answer your question a bit? Yeah, it does. And so, continuing with that, the what specific role has Apple played in your activist work? Mm, mm. I gave that presentation once thinking thinking, oh yeah, that that's not gonna go well. Like you just lost your job. Mm. Uh, and then I got a text message from somebody on the call. Um this lady said, Evan, there's 25 engineers that report to me that all need to hear this story. If you're willing if you're willing to uh, if you're willing to tell it again, I'll schedule the meeting. And I looked at my wife in disbelief uh, and thought, hell yeah, I'll tell this story again. And so, um, you know, the first presentation was for seven people. And then I presented to 10 to 15. Word kept spreading. And it just it built from there. 50 people. Uh, I remember I remember being really excited the first time I had 100 people show up for one of my presentations. Um it got to the point where I just agreed. I just blindly said, I, you know, I'll do this presentation every Wednesday, every Wednesday and Friday on my lunch. Um, I did it over WebEx. This was during kind of the early COVID time. So everybody was working from home anyway. Uh, and Apple's role was really, was really allowing me to do this work. Um, there were, Leader after leader, you know, director, vice president, senior vice president, people, people kept finding, like, kept finding out about the presentation, and kept kept introducing me to other people, introducing me to other organizations, uh, creating creating uh, moments where I could share this story to the masses. So much so that, you know, in June, the first week of June, I presented to seven people. Uh, let's see, I think it was August. 
by July, my my presentations were averaging like 200 people per session. Um, and I stopped counting attendees in early August after I, I presented to, to upwards of 4,000 people worldwide, like 4,000 Apple employees worldwide. Um, and so it, Apple is Apple has just done nothing but help but help me continue to grow my audiences. Uh, now I you know, my, my I stopped doing the presentation live when my son was born when my second son was born. I think he was I think my son was born on a Tuesday and I remember thinking like dang I don't I don't get to do tomorrow's presentation. Uh, since I, I, I left for paternity leave, the video that you were referencing got, was, was, was made. Um, and, and now I, now what I do is I invite large groups, actually groups, it doesn't have to be a large group, but I invite groups to join me in a conversation after they've watched the video. Um, and that's the only homework, watch the video and then come Come ask me whatever questions you have about it. Share your thoughts, share your experiences, ask questions you have about racism. Uh, let's really explore this new perspective that you have. That's a workshop I've been facilitating since November of 2020. Uh, and again, Apple has done nothing but allow me to continue to have those workshops to help me help me grow and help publicize attendance of those workshops in a, in a really powerful way. Okay. Uh- I mean, it's good to hear that Apple, you know, is supporting that, and because it it would have been very easy for Apple to either silence you or to ignore you, and like you're saying, the first time you gave it, you was scared. You thought, oh, this is the end for me, or at least in any major way. But yeah. it seems like they have, you know, definitely supported you, which is fantastic. So, where would you like to take your activist, you know, work? What does the you know the next level in the next 10 years look for look like for you in terms of activism you know that that one's that one's that's a that's like an impossible question for me to answer um the workshop that i mentioned i i really 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 enjoy gathering with groups of people like watch watch the video and join me in a conversation and it's one of those things where until you watch the video, you have no idea the gravity of what I'm talking about right now. Uh, it, it feels weird for me to to acknowledge the greatness that that video is, but it's really, it's truly one of the best stories I've ever told. Um, but even then, you can't understand, you can't understand the benefit, the you can't understand what happens in these conversation sessions until you see one of those in person. Um, you still there? He said something about connection for a second. Uh, I mean, I could still hear you okay. Uh, can you still hear me okay? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, and so, on one hand, the conversation session is scary. It is is every single one of them is terrifying to me because I don't know. I don't know who's in the audience. I don't know what kind of hurtful things people might say. I don't know. I don't know like what kind of negative response I might get. Um, but that said, every time I finish one of these conversations, I feel like, I feel like I'm a better parent. I feel like I'm, uh, I'm more, I'm more prepared to help my kids deal with race, deal with racism, deal with their identity. I'm more able to help my kids learn how to 
learn how to identify their authentic self and then how to show up as their authentic self wherever they go. Um, and so with that in mind, like that's, that's my, that's my one, my one reason for, for being an activist. I think, I think making the world a better place is a, is a fortunate side effect, but it's not my motivation. My, my motivation is trying to do whatever I can to be the best, the best father as possible. Uh, and activism is the, is the greatest teacher I have right now. And so I'm really, I'm really open to, to growing, to growing my work as much as I can, but I don't, I don't know for sure what, what that looks like. I'm, I'm, I'm just remaining open to the, to the opportunities as as they show up. Okay. And have you ever had a negative response at any of your events? Mm. You know, so yes, yes and no, like negative in that they didn't, they weren't exactly what I, what I expected, but they're still, they're still positive as, as even the negative experiences help me understand the enemy, understand the problem that I'm trying to solve. Uh, you know, this, this, this presentation is, is one where like today, literally thousands of people have ranted and raved about how amazing this presentation is. Uh, but one of the earlier comments I got back uh, was from a man telling me, Evan, you should stop listening to people like Ebro. And he listed off he listed off a couple like kind of famous, famous, famous black people. You stop listening to these folks. Uh, instead, listen, listen to this list. And he gave me, he gave me another list of, of Trump's of, of, of pro Trump people. Uh like you know, don't 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 be so against Trump. Not all not all Trump uh, Trump supporters are the same. America ended its ended its issues with racism when Rosa Parks took her stand on the bus. Uh, like that was that was this man's this man's idea that racism ended uh, when with Rosa Parks decades ago, which which is just totally totally like completely asinine and unbelievable. Um, and so on one hand, I first, I first saw that comment and sure enough, it made me very angry, but on the other hand, it, 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 it was a very, it was a very concrete, very tangible example of this is the, this is the, the intentional blindness. This is the, the accepted ignorance that I'm, that I have to fight against. Oh yeah. Like when you hear people like that. Uh, you think you can't really believe that, but there, there's so many people, you know, that believe stuff like that. I remember it was this is nothing to do with race. I saw a interview with you know Boris Johnson, who was the prime minister in the UK, you know, yeah. way way before he became prime minister. But I think it was with his sister, uh, and because their family grew up with money, so they obviously they weren't exposed to certain things. But I remember she was like. They was talking about homelessness and you know poverty in the UK, and she, she literally said, and she you could tell she genuinely believed it. She was like, "There's no homelessness here. There's no poverty. Like everyone's okay." I was like, "You actually yeah. believe that? Like you, they live in London as well, uh, and it was the same. With, let's say if you go to New York, you don't need to go very far to see it. It's like yeah. it's a few minutes walk away from wherever you are." Even in the rich areas, you don't need to go far. And it's crazy that they, you know, believe that 
whether it's because they just don't see it enough or they just are, you know, told a certain, you know, point of view. And as a result, they're just like, oh, you know, they're not really, you know, poverty or racism. They're just making it up or they're just exaggerating it. You know, whatever the, you know, rationale is. But it's, it's insane when you do come across people like that, whatever it is, whether it's race, whether it's poverty, whether it's, you know, a particular individual that's, you know, people don't like, but, you know, they're not as bad as you know, people think. And you know, the way people do sometimes think, and, uh, you know, from what I've seen, America does seem to be more sort of exaggerated, but there's definitely a lot of people that are, you know, have more extreme views. Yeah, I mean, even more than the UK. It's very, it's very easy to find places where, where like, I'll start that over. I know I've met a lot of folks who are like Evan. I'm not ra- I'm not intentionally racist. It just it just so happens that as a child, I never saw black people in the city I grew up in. In high school, I never I didn't go to like I never saw black students in class in college. I didn't see black students in class. I go to work. I don't see black people. I'm not racist, but it just so happens that I live in a neighborhood now where there are no black people. Um. And in such an environment, it's very easy. It's very easy to, for people to go their whole lives never experiencing racism, and to assume that their life is representative of everybody else's. Mm. And my, you know, in, 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 in for those people, for that person in, in, in particular, the only conversations they have about race or racism are all are all focused around like the most egregious examples of of racism. Um, and it is typically a conversation that that is hurtful, that is that is attacking. Um, and what makes my presentation different is even if you don't like you, even if you don't know me, even if you even if you you don't agree with with the words that I'm saying, it's the story is told in a way that you can still you can still understand a perspective of somebody else's life. Like it's 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 hard to it's hard to watch this presentation and not to feel my pain, not to understand how how real and legitimate this is for my life. And just that one glimpse is enough to change people a lot of times. And I, I, I like to I hear people talk about Europe, how easy it is to travel from from one country to another, yada, 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 and to hear different languages. It's just not the same in, in, in the U.S. And that's a. That is that is uh, beneficial to to things like to concepts like racism. Oh yeah, like it, it definitely makes you know a country seem more united and one when there's you know it is obviously you have state laws, but you know there's one overall you know you know legal system that you know everyone speaks English pretty much. So yeah, it it, it does it's easier to make that generalization that. Everything that I've experienced is just generally the way it is, at least in America, if not the whole world. Yeah. Because it's it's a lot easier for me to make the generalization that everything in that I've experienced in the UK, even though it might not, even though I know that it might not be true, is the UK as a you know you know as a whole. But then France and Germany and Switzerland, they're different, even though they may not be any more different than London and Birmingham, for example. Yeah, in certain aspects, but it's very easy to say. Oh, you know, it's all the same here. It's a, the racism is either high or low, even though it depends on the area. You know, obviously where you go, 
and that's the same with you know, any topic. So yeah, I think that's a good point that you make where it's it is very easy for people and it's when you think of it like that is that you know people are obviously you know the product of their environment you know it's we any of us could have easily been you know horrible or you know racist given the right environment even though we are white we could easily be heavily racist towards white people or towards each other each other and it hasn't happened but unfortunately, they've grown up in that environment where it has, especially when you do meet, let's say, white people that aren't racist at all, and they say they've been a bit more exposed to it, or their family dynamic was different. It's kind of like you hate them in one regard, but then you're like, it's, it's not inherently them, but it's become them. So it's like, it is them now because they're like 20, 30, 40 years old. And yeah. are they going to change? It's probably unlikely they're going to do a complete one eighty. But then you know, if they, if the if the grow you know the circumstances were different, they probably would have been a person that you would like to hang out with on the weekend. So that's yeah. that's a very difficult one when you you know really do sit back and just think about it from that perspective of how different things could be. The cra- the crazy the crazy part is America. Like a lot a lot of folks are quick to are quick to deny that racism exists um, and, and and like to think that it was completely, completely washed away in the seventies and eighties. But people forget like the same folks who were enforcing racist laws in the fifties and sixties are literally still alive. Like my, my mom, for example, uh, went to segregated schools. Like she remembers, she remembers when schools were desegregated. And that was that was an awful period in her life, and it's just it's just so crazy to think that the you know just just because desegregation is illegal now, it's crazy to think that the the harm that that legal segregation caused has gone away has been healed because the, the folks who are the folks who are traumatized by those practices as as kids are still alive, <laughs> still still raising kids, still still being grandparents, and so. Um, like refusing, you you asked have I have I received a, a negative any kind of negative feedback to my presentation? The worst the worst feedback is also like almost the easiest to miss. Uh, just the other day, uh, the other day I did a I did a conversation session uh, with with this public group and they posted on they posted on LinkedIn and, and, and got a lot of likes or whatever. Um, and this man commented about how uh, he's like Morgan Freeman said we should stop talking about racism, and I tend to agree. It's essentially, what this man said, just believing that if we if we don't talk about racism, the problem will go away. But that's foolish. Not talking about trauma doesn't make it disappear. And as a society, we we're still dealing with the trauma of of America's racist past, and not like not talking about it. Is is only how you end up with you end up with people as divisive and as hurtful as Trump sitting in the most powerful most powerful seat in America. Oh yeah, for sure. It's it's a it's a crazy one when you do get people like that. When they say stuff like, "Oh, you just don't talk about it," and it's like, quick, "Yeah." Real quick, real quick though, my I need to go help with my kids. Our nanny called out today. Um. 
should we should we try to continue on another day or or, or what are your thoughts? Mm, that's fine. We'll continue on a another day. Just one last question because I would like to end it uh, with you know some potential advice for people. Okay. So what advice would you give to somebody who wants to you know become an activist? And a separate question: What advice would you give to somebody who wants to work at Apple or a big company like Apple? Personally, I think I think I think everybody. I think everybody should want to be an activist. Uh, and it's first to like first start by what asking yourself, what problem do you want to solve? What issue do you want to go against? And for me, that issue is racism. Uh, if you want to be an anti-racist and you don't know how, like stop asking, like, you know, don't read books. Sure. You can read a book if you want to, but like, I didn't, I haven't read any books about how to be an activist. Um, instead start by asking yourself, what has racism stolen from me? Uh, the answer to that question is one is how you find the conviction to stop being silent. Uh, thinking about what has been stolen from you is, is how you find that the, the anger that helps you overcome the fear of being different, the fear, the fear of stepping out against something. Uh, and when you feel that, when you feel that conviction, Figure out a way to use the, nat- the, the, the natural gifts and talents that you already have to actually help somebody. And, and for me, it just, it just so happens that I'm good with words. I'm good with telling stories. And so that's what I chose to do. I chose to use my, my storytelling skills as a means of, of finding a way to be an ally for somebody else. I, fi- I found a way to use my natural talents to actually help somebody. And that that's that's the only advice I can give to somebody is first first find your conviction. Uh, if if somehow I I I literally can't imagine my life without activism at this point because because I have so much conviction to not be silent uh, and that is that is more important me to me like in my mind like having the conviction to find an answer is more important than having the perfect answer right now. Because the perfect answer changes, the perfect the perfect form of activism, the perfect form of being an ally, changes depending on the day, depending on who you're looking to help. Uh, and if you don't have the conviction to to make a difference, then you won't have the energy to find the solution when you have to. So that's that's for your first question. If you want, uh, if you want, if you, you know, advice for people working who want to work at Apple or or, or any similar company, uh, just remember. You're going, you're going up against a huge number of applicants, uh, and with that in mind, being able to have a personal referral from somebody that works at that company is a way to prevent your resume from getting lost in a stack of thousands. That's my best advice. Best advice. Okay, that sounds good. I won't keep you any longer because I know you do need to run. Well, I would definitely love to have you on the podcast again. I've still got plenty more questions. We'll continue with them. We can dive deeper, you know, into what could potentially make you stand out as a, you know, candidate for a company like Apple. So I just want to thank you, everyone, for, you know, coming on the podcast, talking about your past with Carnegie Mellon, Shark Ninja, company that, you know, you clearly love so much, you know, <laughs> Apple, and obviously, you know, the active, you know, the activist work as well. Definitely talk about that some more the next time. So again, just want to thank you very much and 
really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it and I look forward to, to continuing this conversation. Sounds good. Anyone that wants to hear more about what Evan is doing, there'll be links in the description, including to the Let's Talk About Race video. It's a good video and I definitely recommend everyone to check that out. If you liked it, you know, just give it a five star rating and that will definitely help, you know, Evan's message out. So thank you for listening and I'll see everyone in the next Fire Dev episode.